We read together from Luke's Gospel, starting at uh, chapter 19, at verse uh, 48, sorry, 45, apologies for that, uh, and reading into uh, chapter 20, uh, concluding at verse 18. So Luke uh, chapter 19 at 45. Um, That's at page 879 of the Church Bibles. Hear the word of God. And Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. One day, As Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, tell us by what authority you do these things or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why did you not believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the to the tenants, uh, so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out, Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. 
When they heard this, they said, surely not. But he looked directly at them and said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Thank you, Eric, for reading for us. Um, good morning, everyone. Um, my name's Jay, if we've not met before. Uh, it'd be great to meet you after the service. Uh, we're going to spend the next half an hour just looking at this passage together. We found it really helpful if you have the Bible there in front of you so you can see the words as we will work our way through um, verse by verse. Um, but as we come to God's Word, let's pray to him and uh, ask for his help. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for your words. We know that your words encourages us and challenges us. And as we come to this passage this morning, therefore, we ask that you would help us to receive your word and its intention, that we would be glad to hear it and to respond to it, to do what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage is all about rejection. And being rejected is, of course, one of the most painful of human experiences. Something that most of us, if not all of us, have experienced, of course, whether it's not being picked in the school sports team, or friends not inviting us to that party that everyone else is going to, or not getting that job that we really want. Rejection hurts. And of course, for some of us, that rejection is much more painful and more serious than those things. It's the parent who walked out on us, or the friend who betrayed us, or the spouse who abandoned us. Rejection is deep and painful. It's one of the things that's common to all human beings to one degree or another, and it's one of the things that we never get used to and which has lasting effects in our lives. And it is also one of the experiences that is shared by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament anticipated his rejection. Isaiah prophesied about him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And that's shocking because of who he is. Last week we saw Jesus enter into Jerusalem and he came riding on a donkey to the praise of his disciples to fulfill a prophecy of Zechariah, to show that he is the Christ, God's King, that's who he is. And surely, therefore, the people would be glad to receive him. Yet we saw mixed reaction, worshipped by some, but rejected by others. And it's that rejection that now takes centre stage in chapter 20 and will continue through uh, towards the end of Luke's Gospel. So here in our passage this morning, we're going to look at verses 1 to 18 and we see the foolishness of rejecting Christ, the motivation for rejecting Christ, and then the consequences for rejecting Christ. First of all then, verses 1 to 8, the foolishness of that rejection. So here's the setting. 
Jesus enters Jerusalem and he goes straight to the temple. It's in the end of chapter 19. And what he does, he begins to straighten the temple out. He throws out the market sellers who've set up their uh, businesses there. And he starts to teach daily, drawing huge crowds who hang on his every word. Verse 48. What is it that he's teaching? Well, chapter 20, verse 1. He's teaching the gospel. He's preaching to the people about repentance and the need for forgiveness of their sins and the way to get right with God through faith in himself. That you can't just do that in Jerusalem without ruffling a few feathers. So the market sellers in the temple, well, they wouldn't have been able to set up shop there were it not for permission by the religious authorities who are probably taking a commission from the sales. You mess with that racket and it's going to upset the big bosses. And Jesus becomes a popular preacher in the temple, crowds coming into here, hanging on his words. That's not going to go down very well either, is it? Jesus is on their turf and they can see that they're losing their authority to him. And so they think, well, what we need to do is we need to take him out. Chapter 19, verse 47. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people, all the leaders, were seeking to destroy him. Now they get something right. They realize that Jesus' claim to be the Christ is not just going to affect things politically, nor just religiously. They realize that his claim, if true, must affect them personally. That's what happens when Jesus shows himself to us to be the Christ. He claims to be the king of the whole world. But if that's true, therefore, he must also be claiming authority over my life and over your life. And so for each of us, there are only two options. We can either crown him or crucify him. We either bow to him as king and live his way, or we keep our own crown on our own heads, as it were, and say, I'm king of my life, thank you very much, and so reject him and get rid of him. And I wonder which of these options we'll choose this morning. The religious leaders of Jerusalem are very clear on their choice. They seek to undermine his authority. They seek to embarrass him. Verse 2, they said to him, tell us by what authority, sorry, let me read start that again. Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. What's your authority, Jesus? Who are you to make decisions like this over us? What gives you the right to tell us what's right and wrong, or what to do with our way of practicing religion, or our money, or sex, or our career ambitions? Who are you to tell us what to do? It's the kind of thing that we all say in our hearts towards Jesus, isn't it? He's encroaching on our turf, on the little kingdom of our lives, and we hate it. So they seek to undermine him, but Jesus is not so easily undermined, is he? Verse 3, he answered them, I also will ask you a question. 
Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And this is really a killer question from Jesus. John the Baptist's ministry had been to call people to repentance and baptise them and to point people to Jesus himself as God's king and as the one who could offer them forgiveness for their sins. And John had been so tremendously effective, people flocked to him to confess their sins. So the answer here really is a no-brainer. It's from heaven, everybody knows. But these guys can't possibly side with John, can they? They can't say it's from heaven because it's obvious to everyone that they don't believe that. And they can't say John was right because, well, that would mean they would need to believe in what he said about Jesus as well. But neither can they say, well, John's ministry is just of human origin because everybody believes it's from heaven. And in this crowd, the consequences for giving that answer might be pretty lethal for them. Too proud to admit they got it wrong. Too cowardly to say what they really think. And so they do the only thing they can do. They lose face. We don't know, they say. See, Jesus is no fool, and he shows them up to be foolish. Their answer opens the door for him to deny them what they want. He doesn't have to play their game. Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, at that point, we might think, well, look, Jesus has clearly won this round. Um, Now he can just go easy on them. You know, you've shown them up to be foolish in front of everyone. Just leave them be, Jesus. But he's not done with them yet. He wants them to see, and he wants everybody else to see, just why they are so opposed to him, why they want to get rid of him so badly. And so he tells this parable. And the parable reveals to us the motivation for rejecting Christ. That's our second point. It's verse 9 to 15, the motivation for rejecting Jesus. Let me read it again for us. And Jesus began to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant, but they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one they also wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, what shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. It's a very simple parable. Each thing or person in the parable represents uh, someone else. Uh, So what does each thing represent? Well, the vineyard, first of all. Now, we're all familiar with national symbols, so the thistle, Scotland, the red rose of England, 
the daffodil of Wales, the shamrock of Ireland. We know what these things mean. Well, the vine is Israel's symbol. The vineyard here represents Israel or, or the people of God. It's a very familiar Old Testament image. The man, then, the owner of the vineyard, well, that must be God. Isaiah 5, verse 7, says this most clearly. The vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. It's the Lord's vineyard. He owns it. He planted it. It belongs to him. So, God, the owner, the vineyard is Israel. But who are the tenants Verse 9 says that the owner puts his vineyard into the hands of these people and he lets them run it. He still owns it, the vineyard still belongs to him, they're they're merely tenants and he expects them to make it fruitful. So who are they? Who does God make responsible for the spiritual fruit of Israel? To care for the people, to, to nurture them, to encourage their growth. Well, it must be the leaders of Israel, the kings, the rulers, the priests, the religious and political leadership, the guys Jesus has just been talking to. Now, we know, don't we, that there's a problem here. Over the years, Israel's leadership have neglected their responsibility to the owner, and they've begun to resent his authority over them. So what does the owner do? What does God do? Well, he sends his servants to the tenants to hold them accountable for their work. And these servants are the prophets. So throughout Israel's history, God sent his prophets to them. They came to proclaim his words. They were agents of his authority. They called people to faith in God. They warned them that if they didn't repent, they would perish. They were sent by God to find spiritual fruit. But time and again, they're met with hostility from Israel's leadership. So Elijah, he has to run for his life into the wilderness. Jeremiah is put in the stocks in the city and then thrown into a well. Zechariah is murdered in the temple courts. And then the last and greatest of prophets, John the Baptist, he is imprisoned and then beheaded. God keeps sending them and they keep rejecting them because they interfere with their authority. See, the prophets are this pesky reminder that God is the true owner of Israel, the true owner of the vineyard. Now, Jesus is a masterful storyteller. And as he tells the parable, we get increasing tension. So the first servant, he's beaten and then sent away with no fruit. Second is beaten and treated shamefully before being sent away. The third is wounded and cast out. Hostility is growing towards the servants of the owner. Tension's building. And then it reaches its peak in verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. The beloved son of God is sent to Israel. How will they treat him? Surely they'll respect his authority over them. But we know where the story's heading, don't we? And part of us is screaming, no, don't do it. When the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, this is the heir. 
Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. So Jesus knows how he'll be treated, that he'll be rejected and crucified by the leadership of God's people Israel. And look closely at what he says, because in verse 14 he reveals the reason why. He shows us the motivation for rejecting Christ. They know he is the heir. They're not ignorant. They know who he is, that he is the Christ. Yet still they want to kill him. Isn't that shocking? Why would they want to do that? Well, look at what they say. So that the inheritance may be ours. They want to get rid of Jesus so that they can keep control, so that they can keep hold of their power and their prestige and their position, so that they can rule over Israel instead of God. And it's shocking. Yet when we think about it, are they so different to any of us? In the words of the great philosophers of the 1980s, uh, the pop band Tears for Fears, everybody wants to rule the world. Isn't that true? We all want to rule the world. Many times in in ministry I've seen people come to investigate Christianity and, and they understand it, they really do believe that Jesus is the king. Yet when it comes to the point of decision... They won't accept him as king. Why not? Well, because they want to keep control. They don't want his rule. We say to God, look, I believe you made me. And yes, I believe that therefore you have a rightful claim of authority over my life. But I don't care. I want to keep the crown for myself. To live life my way, by my rules to keep control, and it's heartbreaking to see. We can either crown him or crucify him. And when we reject God's rule over us, when we reject God's beloved son as our king, that's what we're doing. We're crucifying him. And when we do that, inevitably, we buy the consequences And Jesus makes that really clear in the last part of our passage. Verse 15, second part of verse 15 to 18, the consequences of rejecting Christ. Now we all know that actions have consequences. It's true in physics, and every action gets a reaction and all of that. Something we teach our children, you know, they need to know that if they do something stupid, it's going to get them in trouble. I remember... My mum once telling my brother, look, if you put that bead up your nose, it's going to get stuck. And of course, we end up in A&E later that day with very unpleasant procedure. Even more, we all know, don't we, that if you break the law of the land, well, the full force of the law will fall on you. But for the crime of rejecting and killing God's beloved son, for crucifying the Christ, the heir of the world well, the consequences must be off the charts. Second part of verse 15 is a terrifying question. 
What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? The first consequence we learn about in verse 16, and it's a consequence for these wicked leaders of Israel in particular. He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. And Jesus has already spoken of Jerusalem's coming destruction in chapter 19. And he's going to say a whole lot more in chapter 21 when we get there in a couple of weeks' time. The days of Israel as the exclusive covenant people of God are numbered. The days of Israel's leadership, meaning control over God's people, will come to an end. They'll be destroyed, Jesus says. And what will God then do? He'll give the vineyard to others. The kingdom of Israel shall fall and the people of God will become the church, a church drawn from all the nations of the earth. Surely not, they exclaim, but reject God and his Christ and God will reject you. Jesus then cites Psalm 118 to really drive his point home. The psalm's actually already been quoted in in chapter 19. We heard some words from it last week. Um, It's a psalm that anticipates the joyful arrival of God's Christ in Jerusalem, but it also anticipates his rejection. The disciples sang part of it last week when Jesus entered Jerusalem. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. But now Jesus quotes another part, verse 17. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And what does that mean? Well, it's a, it's a construction image. I know there's some, some in our congregation who are in the construction business. Um, Jesus sometimes chooses illustrations just for you. Here's one. When you're building a house, at least it's how you used to do things, you choose a, an important stone to put down first. You place it in the corner of where you're going to put the building. And from there, you go out in two directions to the walls. And of course, you go up uh, to the roof. And so it's critical then to get that stone right. If you, if you get it wrong, the house falls down if, and it's all wonky. Uh, if you want the house to build, be built properly, you have to get the right stone. And the psalm says that it's as if there are these builders and, and they're there in the quarry and they're looking for the perfect stone. And they're throwing out other ones that don't fit their plans. But God is going to use the stone that they have rejected to build his house. The leadership of Israel have rejected the stone on which God will build his great house of faith, his global church. They've thrown out Jesus, but God will build everything on him. And the consequences follow, verse 18. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. It's a bit like this. Drop a glass on a rock, say goodbye to the glass. Drop a rock on the glass, say goodbye to the glass. Either way, you're saying goodbye to the glass. The rejection of God's Christ, rejecting Jesus, whether you do that actively or passively, always brings crushing judgment. 
It means for Israel's leadership and for Israel itself that the central place that they hold in, in God's kingdom is passing out of their hands and will be handed over to the Gentiles. And it's a devastating loss. But the consequences are worse than that. To be crushed by the stone is to face eternal judgment. And that consequence is not just for Israel's leaders. So just as we saw, our hearts are just like their hearts in why we reject God's king. So we also need to see that the consequences for doing so fall on us also. Reject Jesus as your king and you will be rejected by him. Crucify him in your life and you will suffer the eternal crushing force of God's judgment. It's what we deserve and it's a terrifying prospect. Now I'm aware that this is, hasn't been an encouraging sermon. Okay? It isn't. It's not an encouraging passage, it's a sober one. It warns us about what we're really like, about what we've really done in rejecting Jesus. We see the motivation of our hearts that we want to be our own king, we want to keep our own crown, and that we buy, therefore, the consequences, the devastating consequences of our rebellion. And if that's it, then we should despair. But that's not it. See, what is this passage meant to do? What's it for? Why does Luke tell us this? It's meant to cause us to fall on our knees before Jesus and cry to him for salvation. And for those that do that, there is good news. For God sent his beloved son and Jesus willingly came into this world. And he did that knowing what would happen to him. He knew that he'd be rejected and crucified by those he came to save. The king came and was crucified willingly and gladly that he may pay the price for our rebellion. And when God raised him from the dead, he did indeed become the cornerstone for the new kingdom that God is building. Just a few weeks later, after the resurrection, the apostles Peter and John are hauled before the leading authorities of Jerusalem. And this is what they say to them. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. The good news, he was rejected so that we might be saved. The rejected cornerstone, Jesus Christ, who brings judgment to those who reject him, brings salvation to those who call on his name. There is opportunity to be saved, for anyone to be saved, if we will call for mercy 
to the one whom we've rejected. And so can I urge us all this morning, take off your crown, lay it before him, and accept him as your king. Do that and be saved. Let's pray. Our Father, as we've heard the words of the Lord Jesus this morning, we are conscious that we have lived our lives as our own kings. We've said we want to live our own way, and we have rejected your rule over us. We are sorry, and we repent. And we lay our crowns down before you and declare that you are our king. Help us, Lord God, to live with you as our king each day for the rest of our lives. Thank you that you promise when we bow before you and cry to you for mercy, that you do indeed give us salvation and forgiveness and a place with you. In Jesus' name, amen.